Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Jimin Show, and I'm your host, Alexander Glickman. And today, we have the guy, the only guy out there who had the balls to step up to the premiere of Ontario, Mr. Roman Bubber. Roman, welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Alex. Let me tell you this. My face, when I saw that letter, I was at Starbucks, read it, I was like, wow, this guy is doing it. <clears throat> You're an inspiration for a lot of people. You became a superstar in this country. You were the first one. I want to know what you had for breakfast that morning when you were <laughs> writing that letter. I want to know, and I think everybody want to know. <laughs> Alex, um, I've been, I've been uh, thinking about publishing or, or addressing the premiere on this issue for a while. I've heard from hundreds and hundreds of constituents who made it abundantly clear that the lockdown is intolerable. And I've arrived at the conclusion that lockdown is effectively deadlier than COVID. And it's very, very important, even though COVID is very real and can be very dangerous to certain groups and in certain settings, it's important that we also consider the toll of the lockdown in the overall health equation and have a fair conversation, not just about the virus, but also the public health measures that we're implementing and the effect on human life, human health, human livelihood. Well, well let me ask you a question. I know you have a back and forth with Mr. Ford, but don't you think that he's, he's um, in the middle of all this? This is a guy who is trying to run the, the, the uh, province as much as, as best as he can. I personally think that he's stuck as a hostage right in the middle between the medical the medical team and, and the economy. And not a lot of people have that experience or probably ever will have that experience. What would you do if you were in his shoes? So to your first point first, Premier Ford has to show leadership in doing what is right for the people of Ontario. And that means making sure that we balance fairly, not just the medical needs, but also lives and livelihoods. My letter was not necessarily about the economy. There's only, only about a line or two about the fact that the unemployment rate doubled and the tsunami of bankruptcies and foreclosure that we're facing. But most of my letter was about healthcare. It was about a holistic approach to healthcare, calling on uh, a second look at the increase in overdoses, suicidal ideations, the missed cancers, the canceled heart surgeries, and so on and so forth. And that requires an objective look, and that requires an open mind. And that requires leadership to be able to go against what has become a COVID dogma, a politically correct narrative that is fortified by cancel culture. And real leadership calls for someone to have a look at it and say, if this doesn't make sense anymore, then we will acknowledge that we were wrong. The lockdown is doing more harm than good. And we're going to end this. With respect to your second question as to what I would do, my letter concluded with a framework. And this is the framework that I propose. Number one, we have to see where the actual problem is. Over 80% of folks that regretfully passed away from COVID are residents of congregate settings, long-term care retirement homes. We have to focus all of our resources, all of our efforts on those folks. We have to build hospital capacity. If hospital capacity is an issue, I don't believe that it is. We have less than one person in ICU per hospital today in Ontario. Number three, we have to be honest about the narrative of the virus. This is not the virus that we were fearing in March and April. 
And number four, we have to lift the lockdown. And that means fully back to school, back to work. Well, obviously our healthcare, healthcare system failed, but it's always been failing. I've been in Canada for 25 years. I don't remember one time going to emergency and getting myself checked in right away. This is a five, six hour wait all the time. And it doesn't matter what happens to you, you're always waiting. Same thing to go and see a specialist. Same thing, you're always waiting. Obviously, we weren't ready at the time of the pandemic. We're almost a year into a pandemic. Why do you think they never built a hospital within the, just uh, within this year? I know it's, it, it, it takes a long time to build a hospital, but why not try? I mean, we're the greatest country in the world. We're the most popular city in the world. We got Drake, you know? We got you now. We got the weekend. We got the weekend now. And we have 1,700 ICU units. I mean, this is an embarrassment. So to your first question, we have always had what's called hallway healthcare. And that is the fact that during certain times a year, certain hospitals, particularly in the busier demographics in the GTA, in Peel, in Scarborough, tend to be at overcapacity. That's not new. Except that capacity, and I wrote this in my letter, capacity is better this year than in the previous than in the last three years. In fact, if you go to a hospital right now to an emergency room, you may be seen sooner than you goes. have because nobody, nobody goes. goes. That's right. We have scared people away from the hospital. And regretfully the effect of that is that we're missing and misdiagnosing or late diagnosing a lot of illness. I had a letter written to me by an emergency room physician last week. And he said to me that he has never seen this amount of advanced cancers showing up at his ER. And he says, I'm seeing stage three, stage four cancer. Person doesn't know they had cancer. By this time, they would have already been in treatment. So this is tragic. Capacity, in fact, is good. Capacity historically uh, is in, in the 90s, in the, in the high 80s this time of year. We're actually in the low 80s by way of capacity. But if capacity is an issue, we should build additional capacity. And in fact, we have built some capacity. We've built, for instance, a state-of-the-art tent a field hospital outside of Joseph Brandt Hospital in Burlington, it's sitting empty. Alex, it's never been used. Check it out, Joseph Brandt. Oh, I've seen it. Oh, so, I, I read so, about it. So things. if we need more capacity, build more capacity, let it sit empty, but at least we will not have the fear-mongering that the premier and the health team does every day telling us that their hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. They won't. Well, the only place in the world, excuse me, the only place in the world where hospitals got overwhelmed was Lombardy and Italy in the beginning of this pandemic with one of the worst healthcares in the world, with one of the oldest populations in the world. Otherwise, this hasn't happened. Even in New York, you remember the USS Comfort showed up with the, the Navy ship, and about two weeks later, it sailed away because there was no need for it. So build capacity if you need to, but let's start addressing healthcare at large, not just COVID. But we, bo we both know why they're, they're not going to build uh, another hospital. We know that, that they know that if they build a hospital right now, once the pandemic is done, they're going to have to continue paying for all of that. That's an expensive payment. And what is the uh, $1.5 billion a year, I think, running a hospital? They know they're going to have to continue paying it for the longest time. I don't think that money is an issue right now. It looks like it is. The problem is not the money. The problem is execution and incompetence. Let's talk about the numbers today. This morning, we're February 8th, I believe. We have about 900, 930 people in hospital with COVID. Some are because of COVID, some are with COVID. 
Out of them, 335 are in ICU and close to 600 are hospitalized. We have close to 400 hospitals in Ontario. We have about one, we have less than one person per ICU and we have approximately, we have under two people outside of ICU. This is shameful, <laughs> which means that what we can, which means that what you're seeing right now is utter mismanagement. We should be able to transfer. We should be able to plan. We should be able to do surge capacity like we typically do during winter season when we typically have hallway healthcare. This is nothing different. What we're effectively have been doing is we've been planning at from various models that end up being overly aggressive. And I, I, I talk about this in social media and in the media is that every single time the modeling table comes back and he says, this is Dr. Brown specifically, if we meet this number of cases, we're going to have these many folks in ICU. And it always turns out to be wrong. They meet the number of cases or they meet the trajectory that they're worried about, but they never hit the metrics that actually matter, like ICU, like hospitalization, like death. And this is because of a very simple proposition. It has become abundantly clear to anyone who has any interest in actually looking at the data objectively that there is no proportional relationship between cases and all the metrics we're worried about. Cases don't equal a factor of ICUs. Cases don't equal a factor of deaths. Let me explain why. You can have 100,000 kids, God forbid, get COVID today, and hospitalization is not going to move. Or you can get COVID in a long-term care facility with 200 seniors, and God forbid, half of them will pass away. It's not about how many cases of COVID. It's about who gets COVID. Because by now we learned that COVID typically affects folks that are closer to end of life in congregate settings, primarily long-term care homes. It affects, so more than 80% passed away are in group homes. More than 80% of folks that passed away from COVID are over the age of 80 with at least one serious pre-existing condition. Those are very relevant numbers. And there are some exceptions. People with diabetes react to it differently, but at large, COVID is not dangerous to the population at large, largely not, and certainly not dangerous to people under 70 and not dangerous to children at all. Zero children passed away from COVID in the province of Ontario. So I think it's time that we start having an objective conversation about what we learned and we stop scaring people, especially children. Look, Roma, I went to see my family doctor a couple of days ago. Listen, I'll be honest with you, by the time I was done with him, I th- uh, my anxiety level was through the roof. I had to drink a half a bottle of vodka just to, just to digest what they told me. The other half, I kept it for tonight. Anyways, so by the time I left his office, I was like, okay, uh, sounds like young people are dying too. Perfectly healthy, no issues. And he, this creates a problem. You know what I mean? Uh, it, when you say only old people, young people die too, and we know a lot of people who died young. That's not that's not accurate. With respect, that's not accurate. So two people died under the age of nineteen. One of them not from COVID. Another one, there's still lack of clarity, and they were in their late teens. Under the age of sixty, and those are statistics available on the Ontario.ca site. Under 250 people died from COVID in the province of Ontario, with or from COVID. That's it, 250 people. Now, every death is tragic. I'm not saying that it isn't. But we have to compare that against the overall effect. Let me tell you, the city of Toronto came out with some statistics last week. 
They've indicated that the number of drug-related overdoses year over year is up by about 70%, 67% up. We went from about 480, 490 overdoses in 2019 in Toronto to over 800. So more than 300, the, the delta, the change of people that are under extraordinary circumstances, potentially purposely overdosing from drugs or accidentally overdosing from drugs because they're not in a program, because they're not in treatment, because they're depressed, because they're not protected, because they don't seek health care, because they don't get health care. That number in the city of Toronto alone, the change in overdoses is higher than all the people that died from COVID in the province of Ontario under the age of 60. So yes, of course, we have to look at every death. But we have to look at healthcare in a holistic fashion. And if we see that on the whole, the damage that we're creating is greater than the lives we're saving, we should stop. And this is what I wrote in my letter. The medicine may be killing the patient. And maybe I'm right. Maybe I, I think I'm right just looking at basic numbers. But in the event that I'm incorrect, let's have an analysis. Let's have a discussion. You know, I, I cited a, an article in my letter uh, I cited an oncologist from Princess Margaret Hospital who said that Princess Margaret Hospital screenings are down 40%. They're barely up to the 60% level. Cancer hasn't gone. Cancer remains, unfortunately. It's our diagnosis of cancer that is lacking. We're missing cancer. We're diagnosing cancer late. Can we not talk about those lives? Can we, should we not account for those lives Absolutely. in our overall equation? So with respect to your family doctor, it, it's, it's time to actually start looking at the real numbers. Over 6,400 people died in the province of Ontario from, with or from COVID. Over 80% of them, so we're over 5,000 over the age of 80, over 80% of them are in retirement homes. We have 1,500 left, okay? We, about a thousand are over the age of 70. We have to be fair about the data and we have to be fair about what's on the other side of the equation. I absolutely agree with you and I absolutely agree with your letter. The reason why I'm asking these questions is that I want to get your opinion to catch, kind of catch both sides, you know what I mean? If we just open up, the percentage of young people who possibility of dying from COVID will go higher too, right? So is this, no, no, is this something that they're afraid of? My, my question is this, why haven't they changed their medical staff, their, the people who are handling this COVID? Obviously, they're not doing the right job. They're afraid I, to admit that they're wrong. There are too many egos and too many reputations and too many careers on the line of people unwilling to admit that they were wrong. The politicians are unwilling to change course, because that will be an admission that they were wrong. But it's okay to be wrong. We were all wrong during the first lockdown. In March, I was a proponent of strong lockdown. We didn't understand what was going on. But by May, I got a much better idea as to where we're at. You see, we thought this is an extraordinary virus. The world has never seen like this before. Came from China. We weren't testing a lot of people from COVID, so we didn't realize how common and prevalent COVID is. So once we had a few folks dying from COVID, we thought that the rate of death, that the case fatality rate is very, very high. Toward late May, Stanford came out with a study saying infection rate is 50 times cases. 
In other words, for every person that we test with COVID, there's actually another 50 walking out there with COVID. Everybody thought that's terrible news. No, that's actually great news because that means that the metrics we're worried about, like mortality, like ICU, like hospitalization, are actually 50 times lower. That's when COVID was over for me. But what I think also happened in addition to reputations and careers, not being one in de- that, that people are worried about, is we have entered this abnormal narrative of political correctness, COVID political correctness. There's a prevailing narrative. We have to stay home. We have to save lives. We have to worry about everyone. And we can't even challenge the authorities. We can't ask them a question politely. We can't challenge them on their numbers. We can't challenge them on their modeling. But beyond that, we can't even talk about the toll of the lockdown, the suicides, the overdoses, the, the, the cancers, the heart attacks. We can't talk about that, apparently. So what happened was, is you have this crazy politically correct culture that is fortified by cancel culture. That if you dare to speak out against this COVID narrative, you're going to be canceled, like I was canceled in Ontario's progressive conservative government. So that has to end. And I'm happy ever since, Alex, I'm at peace with myself. I'm very, very pleased at the fact that after the issuance of my letter, the province started having a new conversation and people started comfortably speaking out about the catastrophe that the lockdown is causing on their lives and other people gain the courage to also opine differently and come up with a different opinion. I think what you did is great. Everybody who has, who initially when we started talking about the show, everybody started messaging me, why don't you take an interview with Roman, Roman, everywhere I go, Roman, Roman. I absolutely agree with you, but there's obviously going to be folks out there who's going to say, no, he, he's sure. wrong. What was your reaction, personal reaction, when, when Ford um, executed that, whatever he did? When I was um, expelled from caucus? Where you were, yeah, kicked out of school. I was, <laughs> I was, it was a very busy day because I knew that there was going to be a lot of media. And I didn't even digest uh, the fact that I was uh, removed from the government until much later. And um, till today, I feel completely fine by it. It's not ideal. I'm I'm currently chair of of Parliament's Justice Committee. I will lose that chairmanship as soon as uh, Parliament resumes next week. Um, I will miss a lot of my friends. I I made some lifelong friendships. And um, I was able to do a lot of wonderful things as a member of the government. I was able to partially reopen Branson Hospital, get a long-term care facility at uh, Humber River. Um, I've I've helped the Jewish community quite a bit in my fight against anti-Semitism. Um, I helped a number of neighborhoods with specific projects. So I, I've had a wonderful run as a member of the government, and um, I will miss the ability to affect change to the extent that I could. However, in the, the price, which is the expulsion, was a small price to pay for what was achieved that morning and what has been achieved for the last couple of weeks. The buzz around us is changing. The conversations since then have changed because people now understand that, yes, there are people that see this. They're not just... We're ch- public health is trying to reward the, the rework humanity. Somehow they think that kids are not going to like slobber over each other or teenagers are not going to make out or young adults are not going to date or we're not going to host each other for dinner. They call us yahoos. They're the yahoos. They, they cannot reorder humanity like that. And it fails, and which is why half Canadians are not complying. So I'm glad that folks are now having the confidence to speak out. We see a lot more doctors speaking out. A lot more educators are speaking out. I think it's a matter of time until the narrative completely changes 
at which point the government will have no choice but to fold on the lockdown. It's, it's the only way. The only way they listen is if it's mass, mass of people going to come out and say, you know what, I'm not taking this anymore. Look, they're feeding everybody with money. You know, the federal government is giving away money. People always say one thing. Well, you know what? We're living, thanks God we live in Canada. And at least we're getting paid every month, you know, by the government. And we, we don't have to go. We can stay in lockdown. Unfortunately, everybody forgot the price that we paid to live in this country. You know, I love this country. This is my home. And I'm sure it's yours, too. And we paid the high price with taxes, with 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 even coming here. I mean, changing the whole the whole culture. We we the immigrants built this place, right? So, what do you think the federal government? Actually, let me rephrase it. Where do you think the federal government failed? I think the federal government certainly helped set the tone. But to your point. I went into public service. I left a very lucrative um, law practice to become a public servant, um, a decision that I'm, I'm proud of and I don't regret for a moment. But And I love this country very, very much. I, love, I always say we live in the best city, best province, best country in the world because all you need in Canada to succeed in Canada are two things. You need to work hard and you need to be nice to people. And if you just do those th- two things, everything will be okay and you get we get to do that and still be ourselves and maintain our values we have life our religion our persuasion and it's a beautiful thing i'm genuinely scared that through this public health insanity um a lot of it is potentially going to dissipate that and we have to fight to maintain it we have to peacefully oppose and advocate against it in terms of people being uh, fed money I, I'm not sure that that is the case anymore. People on the uh, on the lower end of the economic pole are suffering immensely. You have massive price inflation in terms of groceries, in terms of basic necessities. You have people losing work. You have single-family households often losing work because they have to keep up with childcare. In terms of small business, what has been done by this government, what has been done by Ontario, to hundreds of thousands of small businesses is astonishing. Last month alone, we lost 150,000 jobs in Ontario. It's tragic. And this is not just the shops and the restaurants. This is all of their suppliers and all of their employees and all of their families, all of their families. These people are destitute. And somehow, we don't care about that anymore. We care about the fact that we continue to lock down 15 million people without showing any sign that it's actually working. Yeah, cases are going down, daily cases, but the overall number is still going up every day. But ICU is not filling up. ICU is not changing. Well, testing is less. <laughs> of, of course. The, I mean, it's the, mathematics over here. I mean, I, I don't even know how. It's, Look, I think, I think Arnold Schwarzenegger could have done a better job pulling off through this pandemic if he would have been the premier of this of this province. Alex, if, if I may just finish my, my previous thought on the economy, unemployment and economic starvation also has an effect on health. And so this is beyond the restaurants and the shops. I speak to all sorts of industries. I speak to guys in shipping. Shipping is suffering significantly. No one's paying bills. 
professionals are not getting their bills paid. Medium business is also under assault. Um, I think this is no longer sustainable. We can create a, a, a welfare state like the one that we came from, not a welfare state, but a centralized government state, but that's not a good life either. We came away from that. No, we need to get Ontario back on track as quickly as we can. We need to let people go back to work, not just for their work, but also for their health. Getting back as close to normal as we can, as quickly as we can, is the best thing we can do for the health of Ontarians. What do you think about the concentration camp that they built? I don't know if it's a concentration camp. What I understand oh. <laughs> is, I, I wouldn't use that phrase. What I understand is that right now you're going to be detained, even though that program is also in limbo as well. Uh, upon arrival, at a, and you're supposed to quarantine at a, at a great personal cost to yourself, failing which you will be quarantined at the government's will. You know, this is shocking. You and I come from the former, so in fact, I left Russia when it was still, still a Soviet Union. And the ability to enter and exit uh, one's own country of citizenship is something that we looked forward to when we left the Soviet Union. It's protected by Section 6 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And the fact that Canadians are detained just because they entered their own country is not something I ever conceived to myself. And not a single member of the Conservative Party spoke about this, not provincially, not federally, not one MP said, no, this is not right. No. The dogma, the fear, the political correctness that they have subjected to us here makes it impossible for people to speak. Once you lose your voice, once you can no longer question government, government becomes capable of anything. Every week we're seeing new lines, new thresholds passed. It's scary. It has to end. We have lost our freedom of speech a long time ago. I don't think long time ago, but I think that there is... Um, There's a narrative that that is very, very difficult to escape. Uh, I'm fortunate to have escaped it. I'm openly speaking on Twitter, um, uh, at Roman underscore Baver. Uh, typically, Twitter is, is, is a place for like a, a crazy Twitter mob. I, I'm not subjected to that. In fact, I'm finding remarkable support on all of my platforms. I can tell you on Instagram, for instance, uh, the level of support is remarkable. Um, same with Facebook. I think we are in the majority in those that believe that this is an insane exercise by public health and it needs to end. It's just that folks are too afraid to speak, but not anymore, not as much as they used to about three, four weeks ago. So we need to continue having the conversation about what the lockdown is doing to our lives, to our health, to our children, to our livelihoods. And the more we have these conversations, the more, the more we normalize thinking that this is not normal, the more support will gather and the more professionals and the more decision makers will come out and say, okay, the conversation out there that this is insane. So now I'm comfortable saying this is crazy and it will end. Well, listen, one guy tried coming out, opening up. It was Adams and uh, Sons, I think the barbecue place. Look what they did to him. This yeah. is a perfect example. What they're going to do if you open up. I think majority of businesses are scared. I mean, these bylaw officers... They come in like to their own home and they do whatever they want and you can't really stop them. I'm not encouraging civil disobedience or unlawfulness. Um, as a lawyer and as an MPP, um, I will always encourage compliance with the law. I'm talking about coming out by way of conversation. 
normalizing the public conversation that what public health is doing to us by locking down healthy people, something that has never been done before in the history of pandemic management, never, that this is abnormal and that it has a tremendous cost. You know, one of the greatest costs that, that perhaps prompted me to, to write the letter and is, is the cost on, on Ontario's children. I heard from hundreds, I heard every day from a constituent that their child is anxious or their child is depressed or they don't recognize their child or they're estranged from their child or that their child is overeating or not eating. This is tragic. Not Like I said, not a single child died in the province of Ontario and, and God willing, not, not a single one will. But we still convince children, we threaten children, including at the Super Bowl game yesterday with horrible, just perverse, disgusting commercials that the province was paying for a primetime Super Bowl for its Ontario broadcast, that if you hang out with another child, that someone might die. That's false. And we should stop scaring little children. We should stop scaring everybody. But this effect has been the worst. And I'm hopeful that, and by the way, we've put a lot of pressure on the government the last couple of weeks, and now you're seeing that the government is gonna open schools, and I don't believe that they'll close schools ever again, because it's now utterly clear that kids are safer at school. Not just because of transmission, because kids also don't, don't, are not vectors of transmission, but also because the effect on the mental health of children when they're at home is significantly worse than any COVID effect could potentially have. Enough is enough. If we are in this draconian world of restrictions, that means that we still succumb to this narrative that COVID is deadly to all of us and, and we set up the defensive perimeter. You know, you have an event, you set up a defensive perimeter. The mistake is that we set up the defensive perimeter very, very widely. We have to focus on where the problem is which is long-term care, retirement home, and vulnerable populations over 80 with pre-existing conditions, typically almost everyone. I can show up and dine at your restaurant and we'll be okay, all right? And even, and I'll go see grandma and she'll probably be okay. But we will not be okay if we continue imprisoning ourselves because the lockdown is not saving healthy people from COVID. The lockdown is making healthy people sick. Do you think the media could have done a better job? I'm having difficulty reconciling this in my head. Um, sure. I'm, I'm saddened that all the questions that came from the media were along the angle of why aren't you doing more to protect us from COVID as opposed to is what you're doing making sense? Or why is this model so off? Or why did you tell us that we're gonna have, I don't know, 100,000 gazillion people dead and it never materializes, even if we meet the trajectory? Or how does this make sense that you can't have five people standing outside? You can't go down a ski hill at Earl Bales Park in, in my own riding of York Center. The ski hill is closed outdoors where there's almost no transmission, yet we can easily congregate at Costco, hundreds of us, 
or Walmart. How does that make any sense? When it's absurd, and someone taught me this very early in my legal career, when something doesn't make sense, it isn't true. Absolutely. And this is what we've been seeing here. This is just utter nonsense. I mean, look at the planes. I mean, there's 300 people on the plane sitting right next to each other. But before you enter the plane, you have to hold social distance. How the hell does that make any sense? How does it make sense that after you come off that plane, even if you were never on that plane, you cannot help another person who's not a member of your household over for dinner? We went through the holiday season, and we can't see siblings. We can't see parents. We can't see family. Not to mention friends and loved ones. How does that? How does anyone think that this is okay? Against the background of what we now know, again, Alex, in March or April, we thought that the world was coming to an end. But that's no longer the case. We're allowed to share good news. We're allowed to share that the infection rate is so high, the actual death rate is significantly lower than we thought. We're allowed to say that it probably doesn't even live on surfaces. We're allowed to say that. Maybe it's airborne. Maybe it's not as much droplet as we thought, which means does physical distancing even make sense? We should be able to ask these questions and have these conversations without fear. Questioning science is what science is. It's not listen to science. Science is not do what science says. Science is, okay, you're telling me that this is what science is? Prove it. Do it again. Show it. That has sort of ended we have this dogma of, of experts. For every ex there are hundreds, hundreds of doctors in Ontario that publicly have disagreed with some of the approach taken by public health. Their voices are drowned. It's very unfortunate. Because the media doesn't want to follow it. They always leave a gap. So when I look at some of these stations and some of these websites with the local news, they always leave that gap. You know, they'll tell you 80 deaths. 60 of them in long-term healthcare, but the 20 gap. So that gets your mind racing. Meanwhile, it could have been the same uh, elderly people dying at home, you know? I mean, every just like you said, every death counts. But to do whatever they did, I mean, almost a year into the, into the pandemic, I mean, this is a joke. So, regretfully, there is no consideration whatsoever for the people that are actually dying from COVID, or there's another lack of failure, a managerial failure. We still have a carnage in long-term care homes. 10 months into the pandemic, the government has failed the residents of long-term care. There are a couple of concrete steps that you can take immediately to help them. Number one, you can finally institute proper infection protocol and control. It's called IPAC. You're still missing it in a lot of places. Number two, you have nurses, sorry, you have temporary and agency workers that are still allowed to work at more than one home. So they come from one home, they go to another home, and they carry COVID. It's just absolutely absurd that this is still happening. Finally, you can have greater isolation. Don't have folks live in the same rooms, in the same wards. Take them out. If the hotels are empty, Use, build capacity right away. Let people out instead of congregating them in. That hasn't been done. Bring in the military. You know, we have a chronic shortage of staff right now, leading to horrible conditions in these places. Doug Ford says, I always want help, 
but he refuses to bring in the military because he's afraid of another military report indicating what is actually happening in one of those homes. So let's demand better for our elderly. Let's demand better in long-term care and let everyone else, let the healthy live like they always have, irrespective of the peril out there. Because human nature wasn't designed in a way that you and I sitting too close to each other or hanging out would make each other kill each other. It's just not how nature designed us. But I'm not speaking about nature. I'm speaking about actual metrics that we've learned now 10 months into it. We have to call it fairly. We know where the problem is. We have to address the problem where it is. And for the sake of everyone else, let them live. Do you think we should have taken the Florida, the Miami approach? Have, so, you, see, have you seen some of these videos of what's happening in Miami? I so, mean, it's like there's no COVID. So you compare the trajectory of the pandemic in Florida and California. And California was a very strictly locked down state. And Florida was not. And despite having a much older population than California, Florida is doing significantly better. Lockdowns don't work. You can even, again, you can even reduce the daily number of cases. Of course, if we all stay at home and we don't interact with each other, you're going to have less or almost no transmission. There's no question about that. The question is, how does that affect metrics like death, like ICU? And it doesn't. Again, the capacity, the province's ICU number has been roughly flat. In fact, trending down in the last month, month and a half. This is despite the fact that we have, on average, 2,000 new cases a day. So it's not about cases. Cases don't matter. Cases are also subject to testing and, and inaccuracies. And they're subject to where do we decide to test it. I said to Doug early in the pandemic, the number from today to tomorrow makes no difference. We used to test like big employment centers. I said, today you go to Cargill Foods and you get 200 cases. Tomorrow you get to Gordon Foods and you get zero cases. It doesn't mean that COVID disappeared. Right? So the, this testing and case insanity has to end. We have to focus on ICU and we have to focus on mortality. Those are the metrics that matter. Do you think he understands that? Or he just wants to deny it? And the minute you gave it to him exactly where it is, publicly, why do you think he did it? Just to show everybody an example? Alex... I don't want to, I'd rather try and avoid the temptation of talking about politics because this, is, this should not be about politics. This should be about objective and fair and professional decision making. There is no question that, um, at least I understand that within government, there's now less conversations, right? Roman Babber was ousted very swiftly. And that would have the effect of minimizing dissent within the government. No question. But at the end of the day, um, I'll, I'll let folks worry about how they feel about themselves and what they've done with their lives when their main consideration is politics. I'm at peace with what transpired. I wish I could have done more. I am continuing to work every day. I have a petition out there, romanbaber.ca, my first name, my last name, romanbaber.ca, Roman Babber's petition to lift the lockdown. What, what we have to focus on now is to lift the lockdown. And I'm asking all of your listeners to please sign my petition at romanbaber.ca. This is how we identify supporters and we're able to communicate with them and, and message them and help them get engaged in our effort 
against these draconian and insensible measures. They're talking about opening up slowly right now in some phases, very soon. What do you think it's going to be? Not enough. The thing is going to be again these regional. I, who knows yeah, where, sure. where nobody lives. Nobody will. So first of all, I'm, I'm glad we're going to hear later on today uh, with respect to what is going to transpire, and I'm looking forward to that. But um, again, first of all, I think this is definitely to the credit of our movement, because just a week ago, Dr. Williams said we're not going anywhere until we hit about 150 people in ICU and under 1,000 cases. Well, we're not there yet. Same with the schools. We're not coming close, but the government is feeling the pressure. The conversation has changed and the government is feeling the pressure that they need to open up. But whatever it is they're going to come up with, it's going to probably be crumbs just to lead us on. No, we need to let folks go back to work. We can negotiate how that's going to look like. We can talk about indoor capacity. Fine, if we need to. We can, but folks need to go back to work and folks need to be able to see one another and live again. Just a quick question. Uh, actually, a friend of mine asked me to ask you, uh, do you think they should have done uh, close the borders right away? I don't think it's possible because we have so much essential travel coming in daily that closing of the border will not be will, will not have significant efficacy. We have trucks coming in from the USA, right? Supply trucks back and forth and from Mexico. We have essential travelers coming in. We also have family issues and we have loved ones and spouses. I think that we need to focus our attention on where the problem is and make sure that we mitigate risk in congregate settings, as opposed to figuring out ways how to reorder society. It doesn't work. Absolutely. They should have done this long time ago. This first lockdown was fun. You know what? I relaxed for three months. First time in so many years. Nobody really paid that attention to details of what's going to happen. And then they started this whole back and forth thing. And then you realize, I mean, damn, what the hell are you guys doing? I mean, one morning you say one thing. Next day you say another thing. This guy says one thing. The federal government says another thing. I mean, this is a disaster from the beginning. And the way it's continuing is exactly the same way. You're changing a lot of things. A lot of people are stepping up. But I think we need a lot, a lot more of, of uh, especially young, the new generation, need to start speaking up. It's all about tech, you know? It's the young, it's in fact the young generation that is stepping up here and is making a huge difference. Um, they are understanding that they're getting a very raw deal here. Um, they will not have the same opportunities you and I had. And frankly, a lot of them are, are at their wit's end. You know, I cited a study in my letter. The Canadian Mental Health Association came out with a study in, um, in September. This is even before the second lockdown. That concluded that 10% of adult Canadians have suicidal thoughts or feelings. That's four times higher than the normal number. But the number for Canadians aged 19 to 35 with suicidal thoughts or feelings was 20%. And that's before the second lockdown, Alex. This is, this is an unthinkable number about what is happening to people, the catastrophe that is happening to our young people. And we are now seeing them. I, I, 
I didn't even know how to use Instagram <laughs> up until a couple of weeks ago. I still don't. And I went from, I don't know, 800 followers to 12,000 followers. Dude, you were number one viewed guy. I mean, every single post I saw on my Instagram and my Facebook was all about you. I mean, you blew I, up. I don't, I don't even need, I don't, those that know me and I'm known well in the community, I'm not looking for notoriety. And I, I'm not, I don't seek the media. I don't seek the spotlight. I just got into this business to help people. And, and that's my track record, whether it's in my law practice, whether it's, it's constituency issues, whether it's children with autism. I have, this is, helping people is a remarkable blessing. But my point about Instagram was that you have a generation of people that have not taken any interest in politics before, and now they're feeling a real effect of what politics is doing to them, and they're getting engaged. We need them. We need them to get us through this. Roman, I really appreciate you coming down. It takes what you, what you did for us and for our community and for the for the citizens of this country is is magnificent. You made everybody proud. Um, a lot of people are supporting you. I support you. Hopefully, most of our viewers will support you. I just want to say something that to our viewers that continue believing in yourself. Your your word matters. Your actions matters, and they do make a difference. And nobody can take that away from you. As a citizen of this country, we the government owns us the right to say what we, we need to say and to feel how we want to feel and to do what we need to do. Roman, you showed us the example of that. Grateful to you, Alex. Look, to your last point, two quick points as, as we conclude. Freedom of expression is the most fundamental one of them all because it's through expression that we safeguard all our other rights. Questioning government is why we're here. How can we not? Why should we not? It's a principle of democracy that keeps government honest and responsible and accountable. So we have to continue doing that. And we have to continue talking freely about the, what the lockdown is doing to us, to our lives, to our kids, to our livelihood, to our businesses, to, to our everyday life. But I want to leave your, your listeners with an optimistic message. I, I am very hopeful and I have cause for optimism because I'm hearing the buzz around us. I'm hearing this changing because I think that humanity, our, our basic functions, our, our social being cannot be contained. We have to be able to love each other and hang out with each other and host each other and laugh with each other. And sometimes I think about what it was like in the before times, you know, the before COVID times. Those were those magnificent happy times. And we don't need to give up on that. We need to look forward to that. And I'm sure that people are looking forward to that right now as we speak. People are thinking about that. And it's that human instinct to live free and happy and be with each other and socialize with each other and work that will prepare us, propel us through this. They can't stop it. They can't stop us. Absolutely. I got I, I to gotta go party, man. 
I really, yeah. just, I think after this whole thing done, I'm just gonna do a straight 30 days of like partying because you know what? I have changed so many careers in the last year. I became a barber. I became a professional mu- uh, uh, musician. I became a host. I, I I'm a professional reviewer for for Netflix. Dude, I have changed so many professions that I need a drink. I can't wait to to party. Quick question: yeah. Where where is Roman Barber going after this? Where are you taking yourself <laughs> after this, my friend? I uh, I actually imagine uh, what it's going to look like when this is over, and um, I've actually I have this vivid mem- vivid image that is based on a very real image that I have experienced many many times. It's when I enter the Air Canada Center. I still call it the Air Canada Center. It's not Scotia. And the Raptors are on. And I come down and and have a seat. And um, I see the city of Toronto, my beloved, magnificent city of Toronto, with a full arena, with drinks, with with the fans, with the Raptors taking the floor and winning. I can't, that, that would probably be, that's when I will know that this is over and, and we're back. And I can't wait for that to happen. And I hope you come along. Oh, I'll love to. Oh, man. Especially <laughs> knowing you're probably going to be in the first row. I'll come with you. you. You got the tickets? I'm oh, in. You're sitting next to Drake? <laughs> I, I hope we get to do this sooner rather than later. Amen. Oh, Amen to that. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. And hopefully we'll be, you. we'll be out of lockdown ASAP. And get the hell out of here. Thank you, Alex. Good to be with you. See you guys. Stay safe.